She knew what she wanted to do from a young age. And while acting was her goal, it was walking dogs for a living to put herself through drama school that propelled her into her true love. This is Victoria Stilwell. There is no dog that can't be trained, and I'm not prepared to accept any excuses. Victoria Stilwell ma 13-letnie doświadczenie w szkoleniu brytyjskich i amerykańskich psów. Esta es Victoria Stilwell, adiestradora de perros con 10 años de experiencia. Ja albo mój pies. O el perro, o yo. Hi, I'm James Jacobson. Welcome to The Long Leash. You just heard some clips from just a few of the internationally translated versions of the hit TV series, It's Me or the Dog. The show has been translated into dozens of languages over the years, and it's been seen in over 120 countries since 2005. It's the brainchild of my guest today, who's also the star of the show. Our guest, of course, is Victoria Stilwell. Victoria Stilwell has been helping dog owners train their pups for decades now, not only on television and YouTube, but also through best-selling books and her dog training academy. Victoria originally trained as an actress and had parts in TV shows and on the stage, including in Romeo and Juliet, but it was dogs that stole her heart from when she was just a little girl. In this in-depth conversation, Victoria shares her story which all started with an email that would catapult her into homes around the world and give her the perfect platform to show people a kinder way to train dogs. Victoria Stillwell, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. I want to take you back to your childhood and tell me a little bit about how you tried to convince your dad to get a dog. I did. I put loads of... Uh, just little letters under his pillow and please dad can we have a dog please and eventually he allowed us to have a cat but not a dog ever i had a similar situation but i got a guinea pig so at least you got something that wasn't contained <laughs> yeah yeah and you know when we had we had cats for quite a long time after that and um that was all we were going to get from my father because he was not an animal lover mm. But your grandmother was. She was. And really, dogs came before people with her. She lived in a beautiful part of the English countryside next to the River Thames. And she bred beagles. She was a hobby breeder. She loved the breed. And so she was very responsible. So all of her dogs went to great people and she kept up with them. And it was through her that I started my love of dogs. And when did you get your first dog? Um, not until I was, actually until my daughter was three years old. No. So, uh, yeah, I didn't have my first uh, dog until my late 30s. Wow. But you'd been with them for a while because going back to your childhood, as I understand, you not only wanted a dog, but you knew what you wanted to do early on, which was be an actress. Yes, I did. I I really remember as from six years old, really wanting to be an actor. Um, my mother was a ballerina, so she was in the Royal Ballet and I grew up taking dance classes. And I think, I don't know what it was. I just loved acting and I wanted to be an actor. And so that's what I did. And so my university was a degree in the performing arts, English in the performing arts. And then after that, I went to drama school, mm. which very hard to get into, but I went to one of the top five drama schools in London, and that was for a two-year postgrad course. And I came out of that with an agent and a job. My first job was playing Juliet and Romeo and Juliet. So, yeah, it was pretty amazing. That's pretty good. So you tread the boards in London right out of a... I did. Wow. I did. And I did some pantomimes, and then um, I did a musical, Buddy the Buddy Holly Story, that I was in for three years on the British tour in London for a year in the West End and then a year on tour in the United States. So it doesn't sound like you were a starving artist, but... Well, you know, we always said my husband and I, because he was an actor and I met him in the Buddy Holly story, 
we would always say that actually when we were working, that was our vacation. When we were unemployed, that's when we were working because it's tough finding a job. And of course, that's what introduced me to dogs. In order to go to drama school, I had to get some more money. And I started walking dogs for a living. And I loved it so much. I started off with one dog. And then at the end of the month, through word of mouth, I ended up with 20. So 10 in the morning, 10 in the afternoon. And that sort of took over my life. And people noticed you because you had so many dogs when you would go out for these walks. Yes. And a behaviorist came up to me and said, you know, I've noticed, I've watched you with your dogs, which is a bit creepy, but I've watched <laughs> you with your dogs. And this was, let me say, in a place, Wimbledon Common, where, I mean, it's very different now, but when I started all those eons ago, they were all off lead, all off lead. So 10 at a time, and nobody ever ran away, nobody ever fought. And they were all stuffed into my car, and off we went. And the dogs were so pleased to see me, and I had no idea what I was doing. But I met this uh, behaviorist, and um, he was like, I, I've watched you with your dogs, and um, you know, I didn't know if you ever thought of a career in dog training. But and, and that was it. That started off this journey. It was such a joy to spend time with these dogs, as I said, I didn't know what I was doing, but it all kind of worked. And in a weird way, because I didn't know what I was doing, I don't think I expected anything from the dogs and they didn't really expect anything from me. So it just worked. We just were. We just walked and we ran and we had fun. And and I can't explain it. How much of that desire, that unrequited desire that you had for a dog from when you were six years old, do you think, did that play into this connection and this relationship that you had with these dogs? I think to begin with, no, to begin with, but looking back on it, I think it developed and it was something that, yes, I, with acting and, you know, pursuing that as a career was sort of, you, you, you were excited to get up in the morning to go to work because your work is so amazing. But I felt the same when I was walking dogs. I was excited and energized to get up in the morning to go walk these dogs. Doesn't matter, you know, being in England, it rains a lot. So it doesn't matter if it was raining. We still went out. And it was a joy. It was a joy to, to spend time with these incredible animals. And I think that's what informed me more than anything that maybe this is where I wanted to go. So while I was pursuing acting, I was also doing dog walking, dog sitting. And then I started to work in started to train dogs. Did you get that same sense of joy when you were with the dogs as you did? You said when you were on the stage, it felt like play. It didn't feel like work. Yeah, I did. And I think, you know, being an actor made me a very good observer. It made me a good communicator, but it made me a good observer. So I really caught on to this whole idea of watching body language mm. and body language reflecting a dog's um, emotional state. So I would know what my dogs were feeling. And from that, I had an idea of potentially what they were thinking. So I think that's why it worked. And it was this sort of natural progression. Actually, as I began to study it, as I became more aware, I think I became more aware of not just mistakes I was making, but then also it made me make more mistakes because I was more aware of what I was actually doing in a very weird way. I know that great acting coaches often say that Acting is not so much acting as reacting by listening and connecting. And it sounds like that's what you innately ended up doing with the dogs under your care. Yeah, I really had. I remember when I was at Weber Douglas, which was the school that I was at, the woman who taught Shakespeare, her name was Hillary. I forgot what her last name was. She's a terrifying woman. She came in and with this booming voice, she said, right, I'm going to teach you not to act. And that was the most important piece of, um, I would say, advice I ever got as an actor. So not acting. Mm. Now, do dogs pick up that subtlety? Well, it depends on how sensitive a dog is. I think there are some dogs that are just goofy and kind of go through life and don't really kind of recognize that much. But I also think there are other dogs that are incredibly sensitive. So, for example, I have a rescued uh, Shih Tzu, who I rescued when she was 11 years old. She's nearly deaf now, and she doesn't really notice much, and she never has, and she's not bothered by it. My Chihuahua, she notices everything, every little noise, every single thing that I do, she notices. So I do think it depends on the dog. 
you talk a lot about cognition and the importance of, well, let's define cognition. Cognition is really how you and your dog's mind perceives the world around you. Okay. Um, and when we talk about a dog's cognitive experience, we look at the senses, but we also sort of try and define what intelligence is. You know, when I have people say that, well, my dog is very smart or my dog is stupid or really intelligence, um, when we look at it and we boil it down, intelligence is how you negotiate your environment in order to survive. It, it's really hard to calculate whether what a crow is more intelligent than a pig that's more intelligent than a dog. Actually, they all have their intelligence because they need to do different things in order to survive in their environment. So I, I don't look at it as the dog is stupid or the dog is very smart, even though sometimes I will use the word smart. I do look at it as in how a dog learns because dogs do learn in different ways. So I do take that into account when I'm working with a dog. And that different learning schema that they use is not tied so much to what we would identify as IQ, as sensitivity. Yes, yes. And also, you know, understanding, I mean, there's so many different ways that a dog learns, but cognitively, when they're learning from the environment around them and where they're thinking about what they're going to do and how they're going to negotiate the environment around them, obviously that really relies a lot on their senses, including sense of smell. But it also sort of relies on things that we talk about, adaptive intelligence and uh, how to move around a space and memory as well. A lot of uh, amazing research is going on now into the memory of dogs and into the dog's cognitive abilities, which is the reason why we know that dogs learn very similar ways and have the cognitive abilities of very young children, toddlers, around sort of two years old, three years old. And that is generally across the board, across all breeds? Yeah, when you're thinking about how a child learns and, you know, when a baby first learns language, when a baby first learns how to point things out to you to around, around nine months, maybe a bit later than that, and when they realize that actually one pair of socks, that anything that looks like a sock will also potentially go on their feet too, not just that particular object that looks like a sock. So things like that, we know that dogs do very, very similar things. Do you think some dogs are exceptionally bright? I think there are some dogs and certainly some breeds that um, have been taught, trained, adapted and used and through the jobs that they've done for us that have almost been um, have that adaptive intelligence almost molded. So they're they're also they're supremely adaptively intelligent, but it has been molded through the years by us. So Victoria, in terms of you developing your thesis and, and this understanding of cognition and sensitivity, this is something that you developed on your own, or did you did you work with leading experts in this? And where did you learn this? I work with leading experts and I am in the very fortunate position of really being good friends with many of the leading experts, Alexander Horowitz being one of them, Adam McClosey, who I call sort of the grandfather of cognition in uh, um, Budapest, Hungary. And uh, I worked on a show with him called Dogs Might Fly in the UK. And that was a 10 week sort of filming stint. And, and it was like walking with my own personal encyclopedia. He truly is an, an incredible person. And Dr. Brian Hare and all of these people that, you know, they are the ones responsible for finding out all this information. And we trainers take it and make it workable so that our, our clients understand dog and human. To what extent do you view yourself as a trainer versus a media personality? Um, I, I see myself as a trainer first and foremost. I was a trainer to begin with. And when I conceived the idea for It's Me or the Dog, it was because as a trainer, I was so sick of the waste of life that I was seeing in the um, shelters, the municipal shelters of Manhattan and the five boroughs. So I wanted to be able to give information out to a wider audience. And that's how my idea for It's Me or the Dog came about. Why don't you share that? Because I think that's an interesting story, how, how that started. Yeah, I was a trainer in uh, in Manhattan. I had a company um, called Dog Trainers of New York, and uh, I worked with um, a business partner who was wonderful. He's since passed away, but he was a wonderful man. 
And we didn't do group classes. We went into people's homes. And you can imagine Manhattan is a baptism of fire. (laughs) But also every weekend I would help out the local rescue, one of the rescue groups called Cause for Pause. And one of the things we would do is we would set up outside one of the pet stores that was along, I think it was Amsterdam and 82nd, 83rd Street. And we would get, you know, dogs that had been rescued from the animal care and control and try and get them into homes. And so that's what we did. And and I loved that part of it, but it, it would frustrate me that we'd also have to go play God, go into these shelters and pick out the dogs before they had their weekly quota of here is the dogs that are going to get put down. So it was, it just, it just angered me so much. I moved to New Jersey and I set up the company out there, Dog Trains of New Jersey. And I had a daughter and it was when she was about eight months old that I put her to bed and I sat down and I watched the first episode of the super nanny, which is a British super nanny that uh, was the American series. And I looked at that. and I was like, my God, I think this is it because I do this with dogs. So I emailed the production company. I said, I've got a great idea for a new show instead of crazy kids. It's with crazy dogs. And uh, the next day they called me. It was right place, right time, right idea. Wow. And it was as simple as that. It was as simple as that. They asked us, well, could you send a video? So I was working with the craziest family in New Jersey. They had about five dogs, five cats, five kids. And it was nuts in that house. But um, we really, they were awesome. And uh, my husband came along, videoed it, and we cut an eight-minute Super Trainer. We called it Super Trainer Video, sent it off, and that's what sold it. Wow. And the rest is history. How many episodes of that show did you do? Uh, 110. We did 110 over uh, between early 2005 and 2013. And I read that it's been seen in over 120 countries. Yes, it has. Yes, it has. I didn't know there were 120. That's a lot of countries. That's a lot of countries. I know. And I, when I first started it, I mean, we just thought, well, we're going to get a first season and that's it. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the first season, they wanted a second. And so we ended up doing eight seasons, four in the UK and four in America for Animal Planet. So that changed your profile greatly at that point. It did. And so then I used it. I use my platforms because I know that there's a shelf life with television, but if I could build a brand around it Mm -hmm. that not only would show people that there's a kinder way to train dogs, but also teach people about rescue and rehabilitation, and then I was going to use it. And let's talk about that, that inclination, because that was probably, at least from a business perspective, one of the most savvy things. I mean, you're, you're a savvy person. You see an opportunity, you go for it, and then you leverage it. Well, I am the creative idea person, and I'm the one that goes, hey, let's do this. And then my husband is the one that goes, great idea, how? And he's the one that sort of brings me down to earth a little bit. So I think, you know, he has to get a lot of credit as well, because it was really him to begin with that was like, this is valuable information. Let's package this information. Because if we want to fulfill the mission, which is to change dogs' lives positively, which is the reason why we call our company positively, then we really have to make sure that we can continue after television finishes. Because everybody thinks, oh, you know, TV, it's so easy, it just carries on and on and on. Actually, to have an eight-season show is very, uh, it doesn't happen. It's an extraordinary accomplishment, especially to be syndicated, distributed in so many countries. And how many languages do you reckon, 120 countries? Oh, God, I don't know. I think... I think we did like eight languages for the book. And uh, yeah, so I mean, I would get emails from Lithuania and Africa and all of these places, Latvia, and oh my gosh, wow, it's being shown there now. And so right from the word go, the reason why I say I'm a dog trainer more than I'm a media person, because my mission has always been education, Mm -hmm. you know, but when you stick your head above the parapet and you say, I don't think dogs should be treated this way. I don't think dogs should be physically manipulated or punished into behaving. And I don't believe that shock collars should be used or any kind of paraphernalia to cause pain and intimidate dogs into complying or obeying. You get a lot of pushback by that, by people that are threatened with your your message. And so, you know, there was a lot of criticism. There was a lot of support, but there was also a lot of criticism. But I think when you stay true to what you know is right, 
then that drives you. And I, I think that's me. I've always been a very driven person. So when you get into those ideological approaches, as you say, there are these two sides of the fence and they really don't meld together. How do you manage that? It's frustrating. It can be sinister. It can be exhausting and tiring, but it's also really inspiring because it's not just me. There are thousands of trainers out there now that uh, through one way or another, through following me, but also following other incredible trainers out there that are doing the same things, maybe not in the media as much as I am, but are still doing the same things in their communities. You know, you, when you see that the movement of just kind of <laughs> being kind and positive it is growing exponentially, it makes all that pain worthwhile. Coming up, how Victoria Stillwell created a global network of world-class dog trainers and her thoughts on the controversial dog whisperer. And now, a message from your dog. Every day with you is like a day at the beach. And I want as many beach days as possible. I want to run and sniff and find a good stick to carry. I want to roll in the grass and warm my belly in the sun. I want to walk with you, run with you, sleep with you, eat with you. And when I eat with you, I want Everpup. The green, grassy, beef liver spiked smell wakes my senses. You may not realize this, but it tastes like homemade gravy, especially when you wet it. It infuses any food you give me with health and life and vibrancy. I can feel it. Everpup traveling to every cell in my body, nourishing each one. Does it roll back time? Of course not. Not really. But it helps me feel like I'm on top of the world. I'm so glad you're giving it to me every day. Because every day I'm so glad to be with you. I'm so grateful to be your dog. And for the Everpup you give me. So now that you know what your dog wants, get Everpup, the ultimate dog supplement. Everpup is available in select pet shops and on Amazon. But to get the best price possible, join the Everpup Club at everpupclub.com, where you'll get your first jar for just $8 with free shipping anywhere in the U.S. Go to everpupclub.com and use the discount code DPN. That is everpupclub.com. Everpup every day. Welcome back. My guest is Victoria Stillwell, dog trainer, TV presenter, and author. Now, Victoria, you are not alone in the dog training personality space. There are the likes of Caesar Milan, who has had his show The Dog Whisperer with Caesar Milan for many years. Uh, people have questioned his methods. Have, have you two ever spoken? What do you think of his approach? Uh, we haven't. We haven't. And, you know, I'm not a total... Uh, against Caesar Milan. I think what he's done in so many ways, I think he's very charismatic. I think he's actually very good at what he does. <laughs> he's very good at, at um, you know, his timing is excellent. I might not agree with a lot of the ways he does things. And I am very much, have been outspoken against such ways of doing things. But I also think he's done a lot of good in terms of rescue. I just don't see eye to eye with the way that he does some training. I don't I don't agree with utilizing shock collars, poking dogs, hissing at dogs, or uh, physically touching them in any kind of way as a punishment. How do you think that conversation would go? Uh, I don't know. And you know, I see things sometimes online that goes, Caesar versus Victoria, who would win? And I have people on that sort of that other side of the more the traditional training camp, the old style camp, like Victoria, this... You know, positive reinforcement is fine for small fluffy dogs and works for dogs that are confined. But the big dogs, the red zone dogs, only Caesar can deal with that. And I kind of just giggle and laugh and go, well, A, have you seen my show? And B, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so, Why do you suppose there's such confusion and such divisiveness? Because everyone at the, at the end of the day loves dogs. They do. And I think that's the problem. You know, when you're talking about that, you're talking about... A, you're sort of 
putting checks and balances on what they've maybe done for a very long time and what they believe in. Hmm. And B, you're, you know, when you're talking about somebody's dog and the way they treat their dog, it's almost like you're telling somebody how to treat their child. So I think there's a lot of pushback because people don't want to know or they're scared by it. They get very defensive by it. And they're as passionate as we positive folks are about what we do. So I have to sort of take that into account. And to begin with, I was very outspoken. I was very much, you know, critical of what these people did. Now, um, rather than actually paying attention to that, I would rather spend more time with clients and teaching them what to do rather than telling them about, hey, be careful, don't do this and that. I'm going to show by example that actually doing this with any dog, regardless of breed, size, or issue, can be done in a kind, positive way. So it's not so much that you have mellowed in time, it's just that you have reoriented where you've put your focus. And obviously not everyone can have Victoria train their dogs, but you built a whole organization to make that at least more approachable. Yeah, because that's what happened. We had an email address on my website at that time that uh, people could contact me. And so, I mean, I would get a gazillion questions. Please come train my dog. Please come train my dog. And so my husband and I sat down and were like, how are we going to do this? Um, and that's where the VSPDT, Victoria Still Positively Dog Trainers, came in, where we created this organization where I would review other trainers and they will come and train under my umbrella, still keeping their organizations, but sort of where we would exchange ideas and they would train under the Positively brand as well. So the VSPDTs, I'd say they're the creme de la creme and we're all like-minded and we teach in a very similar way. But then of course we took that a step further as well as we wanted to find a way to actually educate people so that they started off in training in the right way. And that's how the Victoria Stillwell Academy for Dog Training and Behavior occurred. That's how it was created. Tell us about that. Yeah, it's, um, again, education right from the start. So for me to have an academy that I don't think there's anything else out there like it is truly a an honor. And it's also, I do really look at it as how lucky I am and what an honor it is to be able to help people on their journey to becoming a dog trainer or to do whatever other job that they want to do in the animal care industry. So the VSA, VSA we call it, is a labor of love and it is a, it's intense, but there is a, you know, our course, our dog trainer course, which is sort of the linchpin of the whole thing is turning out some pretty incredible trainers. How many people have you turned out at this point? Oh, hundreds so far. Yeah, hundreds so far, all around the world, all around the world, actually. And we also have courses that thousands of people have taken now. So, because it's, you know, it is definitely an investment that people make. We have the finest faculty and we have the finest, I think, educational experience when it comes to dog training because it's an all-round experience. We're not just sticking to one type. We teach people a whole load of different types of uh, training under all under kind of a, a positive umbrella and a philosophy. But we also teach them business skills and also, you know, social media skills as well, as well as how to be with people how to interact with people, because that's incredibly important. And the types of students you recruit for or, or who? They will come to us now, mostly through word of mouth. And some of them are, want to be trainers. Some of them are already have existing businesses in animal boarding, or they are groomers, or and they want to add training to their sort of specialities. So it's really great to see the types of people. We have men as well as women. As you know, this is a female-dominated industry. Weird that most of the trainers on actual television are men. It's always mm. kind of irked me. Why? Come on, people. There's more women out there. <laughs> Why do you suppose that is? Oh, I have my I have my suspicions, but I do think I don't know. I, I think it's up to the networks now to actually really understand this industry. I think producers with the best intentions see the dollar signs, but they don't really pay much attention to the actual repercussions that it has on dogs or on the industry. And so I wish they would maybe 
actually do a bit more research into what makes a good dog trainer and what we need to be doing for our dogs. And also sort of realize that females in this profession, that this is a female-led industry. So while it might be good telly if to have a man wrestling with a big red zone dog and being very dominant, it's actually not the way to do it. So... Do you think that's what it is? It's basically producers and programming executives yeah. going, oh, that looks much better. Oh, yes. Because, you know, to be quite honest, actually clicker training a dog not to run out the door is not the most exciting thing. <laughs> not that I'm a big clicker trainer. I'm not. But, you know, that's why very early on, because like, I wanted to do a dog training show. But then very early on, I realized the thing's going to sell it. It's got to be entertaining too. When I was a kid, there was a British dog trainer woman on television. What was her name? Her name was Barbara Woodhouse. So yes. I have to say she started it and she wore, you know, tweed and sensible shoes and was... <laughs> it said with the perfect British accent, the way you said it. <laughs> Absolutely. And it was jolly hockey sticks and, you know, no bad dogs, just bad owners. And she'd blow up horses' noses and, you, you know, tell people off. And, and so, you know, when I came onto the scene, because it was Super Nanny era... The, the network that I was on, Channel 4 in the UK to begin with, kind of wanted us to have that sort of now, come on, um, get in line uh, and uh, attitude. But as we sort of carried on and I went on to Animal Planet, we did soften a bit. But, you know, it's still, even though it is positive training and it might not be as sexy as, you know, seeing a poor dog being wrestled or dominated and put on its back and side until the poor, poor thing submits, you know, I'm not going to do that. And I don't care how not cool that is for television purposes. I'm not going to do that. But I think where it's me or the dog truly shines is we are so 100% genuine. And, you know, I truly care. So even though I am blunt at times, every person knows that I truly care about their dogs and their success. Did you ever meet Barbara Woodhouse? I never did. No, never did. I think she was a force to be reckoned with. I think she'd scare me, even me, yeah. Even you. Even me. I bet you, but you would have a lot to talk about. I think we would. I think we might argue a little bit. But, you know, she was the first person. Then, of course, was Dr. Ian Dunbar. Mm -hmm. And I don't think enough uh, kind of weight has been given to the contribution that he's made to the dog training industry, which is vast, vast. Talk about that, because I, I met him once five, six years ago in, in Britain. Yeah, he is another force to be reckoned with. He was a, a veterinarian, and I think he went to Berkeley in, um, or he went to university in California. And he was, I think, roommates with Dr. Nicholas Dodman, who is another very fine vet, vet behaviorist at Tufts University in Boston. And really these, these two sort of paved the way for the rest of us. And then of course, you've got Karen Pryor. They were the ones that stuck their necks out to begin with and said, look, things can be done differently. Their colleagues and their peers laughed at them, but they stuck at what they they knew was right. So I sort of tip my hat to Dunbar, to Dodman, and also to Karen Pryor. So you rely on veterinarians a lot, both in the TV programming and in the content you create, as well as the the the, the academy. How has that relationship with veterinarians evolved over the years? Oh, well, it's vital. And I think, you know, look, dog training as an industry is still quite new. And I don't think dog trainers have been taken, or at least up until a couple of years ago, taken that seriously. You know, that's why, again, another thing of why we did VSPDT, so that this could be some kind of, not certification, but some kind of checks and balances because at the end of the day, people are going into people's homes, working with their dogs and um, being around their kids. And so, well, you don't need a license to do this. And anybody can set up as a dog trainer. So I think that and the VSA was giving those accreditations along with other dog training schools out there that are crediting people to say, yeah, this person is ready to come and work with your dog. But the relationship has grown before, you know, when I first started, let me just tell you, when I was in Manhattan, there was no social media. Mm. There's no websites. The only way that I could get my message out was to, A, put my little pieces of paper in pet shops and also to go around all the vets to say, look, here I am. If you have a dog that has a behavior problem, here I am. So that's what I did. I went around every single veterinarian in Manhattan. Really? 
yeah, that's the importance of that vet trainer relationship. So I think some of them were like, well, who are you? Like, what's all of this dog training? We know about dog trainers and we actually, because we've done so much studying, we don't hold much weight with them, but now it's changed. Now the best relationship, and I always encourage all my students is to have a relationship, not just with your veterinarian, but with your nearest vet behaviorist, which are incredible resources. So even on the show that I'm doing now, because we're filming It's Me or the Dog again in the UK, even on that, I brought a vet behaviorist in, one of my vet behaviorists that I work with. And what's the difference between a vet behaviorist and a trainer? Well, let me first of all say a veterinarian is the one that deals with the medical issues. But most veterinarians, and still in most vet schools, they do not have any, hardly at all, any education in behavior because it's just simply not time. Mm-hmm. So a vet behaviorist is one of those people that are a veterinarian, but they then specialize in behavior. So they have a DVM or a, yes, they they're do. a full veterinary graduate. Yes, but they also specialize in behavior. So then there's the trainer and you've got kind of, you know, there are those trainers that teach dogs to sit, stay, come when called. And there's other trainers like me that are behavior experts where we do deal with behavior. There are some trainers that will deal with mild behavior issues, jumping up, running out the door. And there is other trainers that will focus on aggression. Do you think that veterinarians have evolved over these years that you've been in the field in terms of being more open to this? I think they have. Definitely the younger ones are more open to this, but I still unfortunately see many veterinarians or hear of many veterinarians that are giving bad outdated advice, especially the older generation, and, you know, still recommending those shot collars and prong collars and stuff. And why, I I really don't know. And I truly hope that veterinarians, you know, like we need to stay in our lane. Veterinarians need to stay in theirs, and we can use the vet behaviorists to bridge the gap. Let's talk gender for a moment. We were talking about it a while ago as it relates to dog training. Obviously, more and more women are coming into veterinary community, where I think at this point, there are more women. Do you see there's a difference in terms of gender, in terms of their approach to this? Yes, yes, definitely. Absolutely, definitely. And it's really sort of sad to see that. I mean, one of my favorite vets is male. He looks after my dogs. He's just the most wonderful person. So please, I'm not saying all vets are bad and I'm not saying, you know, and they do an incredible job and an exhausting job Hmm. and a, a very psychologically difficult job as well that they do. But I do see more females coming in and I think this is this is a wonderful thing as well. But like that I most of the vets on television are male. What is this? <laughs> Come on. That's why I'm saying look to these networks and these producers. Start and a lot of them are female too. Give your fellow females a chance. Really do your research and know what you're taking on. Next on the long leash Is the hit TV show, It's Me or the Dog, making a comeback? Victoria Stilwell reveals all. And the dog bite that she believes happened for a reason. I am back with Victoria Stilwell. Victoria, I for one have missed watching It's Me or the Dog. So I was excited to hear that the show is coming back. When did the last show go to air? So I think at last, uh, we last filmed in 2013. So yes, I started filming. I was filming a couple of months ago in the UK. And I think I've been back actually for about a month in the US. And I go back to the UK again in a couple of uh, weeks time to film another 10 episodes. We're doing 20 episodes. I can't tell you the network yet, but you'll be able to see it in the UK and then it will go around the world. So yes, I'm back at it again. What's different with this new revamp of It's You or the Dog? Uh, I have less time. That's the challenge. And I truly only have a day, a day and a half. Oh, for each episode. For each episode. So it's very challenging. So while I would say I, I'm not I'm not the biggest fan of filming it, I'd rather just get in with a dog and a client and just, you know, work it out and not be under pressure. The filming it has really just, it refines everything I do. It makes me simplify. And I think that's very important for people too. It's very important that trainers don't go in and give a laundry list of things for people to do. It's most important that we make it as simple as possible for people to, even with severe issues as well. So that's why I'm very excited. Because, you know, 
some of my old stuff is old stuff. I mean, I was educated in the whole, you have to, when your dog comes into your household, it can take over your household, you know, the pack leader theory. I've since then found out that what didn't feel right is actually not right. Dogs don't come into our homes wanting to achieve home or world domination, but I'm very excited to be able to show sort of the newest techniques. I think that's very cool. Let's talk about the show that is on the air now in the U.S. and around the world. And the U.S. is on the Smithsonian Channel, Dogs with Extraordinary Jobs. What a great title. Thank you. Limited run series. Only a few episodes. How many episodes? Five, five episodes. In fact, we just had our series finale last night. Yeah. But, you know, it's it's on the app as well. So, And what is, I mean, I think the title is self-explanatory, but <laughs> so what are some of the fun jobs that you've discovered with Dogs with Extraordinary Jobs? Well, I wanted to do a mixture of jobs that people know about, but also jobs that people might not know about. And uh, again, it's like, look at the dog that you have in your living room and just appreciate how truly incredible it is. Let me show you some extraordinary dogs here. And it's not just these dogs that are extraordinary. Your dog is extraordinary too. So I came up with the idea because a friend of mine phoned me and was like, you never guess what I'm doing right now. She said, I'm on a boat in New Zealand with a dog that's detecting the sonar of a particular type of dolphin. And I'm like, wow, that's extraordinary. And then I was like, hmm, what other jobs do dogs do that maybe we don't know about? So I started researching it and I started seeing all these incredible things and thinking, oh my gosh. And so I approached a production company that I had worked with previously on Dogs Might Fly, where we taught dogs to fly an airplane. And they were like, yeah, we love this idea. So fortunately, a company called, uh, or a network called Blowout Media that distributes to all of these great channels, including the Smithsonian Channel, like the idea. So we filmed with some amazing dogs all over the world. We filmed with the dogs in old Pajetta, Pajetta, I don't know how to pronounce it, which is a place in Africa, in Kenya, that is a conservation area that protects the rhino mm. and it has the last two northern white rhino in the world and there are a group of malamois and bloodhounds that protect these last two white rhino wow as well as other rhino yeah so incredible but then we also filmed in namibia with nati now nati is a big sort of a jack russell mix she's a fat old sausage dog but nati is nursemaid slash super nanny to all of these orphaned wild animals, including hyena, cheetah, and baboons. And actually, when the hyena and the baboons grow up, because they're orphans, they cannot be reintroduced back into the wild. So for example, they are kept in beautiful enclosures, but every day, Nati takes 40 baboons down to the lake to drink and to forage and to, and she teaches and they copy her. So Nati is being a Jack Russell. She digs. So the baboons, especially the young ones, they watch her and they start digging too. Truly, truly amazing. And then we also have the, again in Namibia, we have these Anatolian shepherd dogs that were brought in by the cheetah program because cheetahs were being killed. Cheetahs going after livestock are being killed by the farmers. So there's the dwindling cheetah population. And actually by introducing the Anatolian shepherd there, that can look after, that we can breed them and um, give them to farmers that actually can look after the sheep and the goats. Now they're protecting them from the cheetah. Now the cheetah population is growing again because they're not being shot by farmers. I mean, this, and this is just a few examples. That is awesome. We will put links to that in the, the show notes for this episode. It's pretty extraordinary. Victoria, let's talk a little bit about your volunteer efforts. You're obviously very busy. You're doing these shows. You're creating these academies. You are writing books. But you're also finding time to volunteer. Volunteer, well, again, when I started, I started walking dogs for Greyhound Rescue in Wimbledon. And I did some dog walking for Battersea Dogs Home in London. And so... I was introduced to rescue pretty early on. So, and of course in Manhattan, working in a lot of rescue for that. Now here in Georgia where I live, you know, we have a lot of problems with the puppy mills. And so I've done a lot of puppy mill busts and, you know, hoarding situations, things like that. But also just general rescue. It's just something I, I, you just got to do. I, I, don't, I don't know. It is We've made such strides, you know, we've made such strides in the rescue world. There's still a lot 
more to do, especially in the South. But, you know, once you start in this, in rescue, you can't stop. Puppy mill busts. Are you, you're there as mm. part of them? Oh, yeah. Oh, we have to, we ha I'm sure this is the horrific oh, thing. Yeah. And this is a podcast, so you can't see her face, but you can just see that you're like getting deep and contemplative. But t tell me about that. Share that. You'll be able to see one of them that we did. It's on my YouTube channel, Victoria Stilwell, and you'll be able to see it's called Puppy Mill Dogs Get a Second Chance. So you'll be able to see a, uh, one of the busts that we did. We had about 400 dogs around that that turned into about 500 um, dogs and breeding dogs and puppies and stuff like that. But great strides have been made in the UK with regarding uh, puppy mills. Um, and now it's actually a law. It's called Lucy's Law. There is a law now that bans the third party sales of puppies, kittens and rabbits in the UK, which is effectively shutting down the puppy mills, which is very important. The same needs to be done here. And in fact, different states have taken action. We've had California, and, uh, Massachusetts. I think there are various yeah. states uh, that are doing it. And now we're trying in Pennsylvania. There are some amazing people, including the Humane Society, but also finding Shelter Animal Rescue that are working very hard with lawmakers to stop the third-party sales of puppies there, which, of course, Pennsylvania is the puppy mill capital of the East. And I have been to many of the farms in Pennsylvania doing rescues there, and it is absolute disgrace. So these pet stores that sell puppies and, you know, oh, that they are AKC registered and they have these wonderful papers. It's all, uh, you know, that's a, that's a whole other podcast, but it, it's an absolute disgrace. And so I fight hard against the puppy mill industry. And I'm hoping that various municipalities, uh, cities, um, towns will follow suit and not allow pet stores to come sell their puppies from puppy mills. So in addition to your volunteer work on those initiatives, you're also involved in biting and helping people understand the difficult situation around dog bites. Yeah. And un unfortunately, you know, I, I, again, I've worked with families of lost children and they want to share their stories. Never thought that it would happen to them. But uh, to working with families whose maybe dogs have been starting to growl a little bit and, and understanding a what aggression is um, and b what you can do for your dog and why and then also for when it becomes extremely serious you know as in a dog has killed somebody or mauled somebody why what happened so that's why I sort of vaguely laugh when stupid traditional trainers tell me or speak out and say well Victoria you just deal with the small fluffies well what they they might not know is that I also have done a lot of evaluations of dogs that have killed children. So mm. um, I don't think you can get more aggressive than that. And through that work, along with James Crosby, uh, Jim Crosby, who's the dog aggression guy, who's amazing. And you then you've got other people as well that deal with aggression. We can collect data and find out why this is happening. And we can then put information out about how to stop it. Because look, this human dog relationship is incredible. Sometimes it goes wrong and sometimes it goes very wrong. And I don't care. You know, you can use stats all you like about 30 people a year may be killed by dogs in the U.S. Well, that's <laughs> one is too many. Hmm. Try telling that to a, to a family that's lost their child, lost their baby. Sorry. No, I want to get it down to zero. And that comes with education. So I've worked a lot with um, State Farm. We have Kindness is Powerful program. We do the dog bite prevention every year along with the AVMA, the American Veterinary Medical Association, and other amazing groups to try and spread the word about dog bite prevention. Now, you had your own dog bite story back in March of 2016. I did. I did. Uh, I um, have been working with police dogs for quite a while. We did filmed a show, which we want to see it. It's an online show called Guardians of the Night. Um, check it out. And it really came from actually wanting to learn more about working dogs. So I started working with the guys, the canine unit at the Gwinnett County Sheriff's canine unit here in Gwinnett, Georgia, and really learned so much from them. They're not entirely positive, I have to say, <laughs> but they really, they learned a lot from me. I learned a lot from them. And uh, so I rode along and filmed the show for five years, learned about working dogs, working with police dogs, about, you know, their drive and about how different they were from companion dogs, but in a way so similar as well. And unfortunately, you know, we were at a 
at a sort of a seminar that was being put on down in Alabama. I was filming my guys and I made the fatal mistake of actually filming with somebody that I didn't know, whose dog that I didn't know and was told it was okay to sit in this helicopter to film from this helicopter. So I was behind the camera, not interacting at all, not training, um, just filming for the show. And the dog that normally sort of sees a succession of, I get into the helicopter, the helicopter takes off, we fly around. Then as the helicopter lands again, I'm set off to go run after the decoy. Mm. So it's part of police dog training. I was sitting in the helicopter and this dog that should have been better trained and actually I know had been very punitively trained was off the charts and instead saw that actually complete the sequence much faster. Even though we had, I'd met the dog, even though we had rehearsed the dog getting into the helicopter, we had done all that. We put all the checks and balances in place in order to mitigate any kind of anything going wrong what really the dog didn't G up until actually the rotor blades went around. Mm. So, you know, my mistake being in a confined space, but also the handler's mistake in thinking that this would be okay and telling me that this would be okay and training his dog too punitively. And, you know, again, there were a lot of criticism. And the dog bit your thigh hard. Oh, yeah, yeah. Dog bit my, um, just above my knee. Mm. Oh, huge. This is a Belgian Malamar with a full force. Um, so I know what it's like to be bitten by a dog. It took me a good, you know, I had to go to hospital. It took me a good six weeks to be able to sort of walk properly again. And, you know, I know why it happened. There is people out there that can say, well, I want to Victoria, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be training police dogs. <laughs> and they have no idea what actually happened. But all I'd say is that, you know, their police dog training has to evolve too. It's evolved in many different countries in Europe, and it has to evolve here too. There is too much emphasis on punishment here, too much emphasis on shock collars and uh, causing pain and intimidating dogs. And I'm telling you that there is a huge welfare issue with police dog training here in the United States. That is fascinating. Tell me about the approach that they use in Europe in terms of training police dogs, because there's a lot of police dogs in Europe. Oh, yeah, you cannot use shock collars. Oh, my God. But the, the London Metropolitan Police, they have to have very hard dogs because, you know, there's riots and a lot of drunkenness. And, um, and most policemen in London don't carry guns themselves, so they have dogs. No, they don't carry guns. So, you know, things are changing a little bit, but... These dogs, yeah, you'd be thrown off the force if you even put a, put a prong collar or a, a shock collar on a dog, and in many, many countries in Europe. So yet they have some of the best dogs. In fact, where does America get a lot of their dogs from? Europe. So if they can do it and have very effective dogs in the UK without shock collars and prong collars and really bad, painful techniques, they can do it in the US. Fascinating. And do you ever get involved in some of the trainings that they do over in Europe with police dogs? Um, I have. Yes, I have. And uh, it's wonderful to see it. And it's wonderful to be part of that. But yes, I have. And I think that's important because I don't think you can really talk about something unless you've actually experienced it yourself. And so going back to the dog bite, I was now able to understand those people that have been bitten. And so interestingly enough, the doctor that sewed me up in the middle of nowhere, Alabama, um, <laughs> actually had a, he had an autistic child and he had this organization that works with the NFL creating sort of uh, sensory rooms for autistic children in stadiums. And so I started working with him. So you know what? I really truly believe that this, this happened for a reason. And unfortunately, the dog that did bite me was repurposed, was sent away to somewhere else and bit a child. And so, you know, the reason why I'm not working there anymore is because obviously my other work takes over. But you know, this is a whole different beast. And the working dog world is a whole different beast. And there are some very, very tough, very unpleasant and unkind people working in that world, as there are some really cool people working in that world as well. So I'm just hoping the cool outweighs the not cool. <laughs> we'll see. Time will tell. Are there such things as bad dogs? I never say that a dog is bad, but there are dogs that through no fault of their own, through trauma, through neurological issues, are just unable to live successfully in a domestic environment. And I think it is wrong to say that any dog can be trained. I think it is very dangerous to guarantee behavior. And I think it is wrong to say, oh, well, you know, yeah, this dog can be saved, 
by putting a shock collar on it because one day that shock collar is not going to work. Mm. One day that dog that you've already increased, it's already stressed and you're increasing its stress, one day it's going gonna, it's gonna to bark back at you. But even then, I have only recommended very few dogs to actually be, to be euthanized, which I think is also the job of a trainer. And though when you work in rescue, you sometimes have to make hard decisions. But I'll stand by every decision that I have made along with a vet, along with a vet behaviorist, on and off the television, because we have a duty of care. We have a duty of care for the animals. And we also have a duty of care for people. Let's talk about another organization that you're involved with, the Gray Muzzle Organization. What a great name. I know. Well, I've got a senior dog. I've got two senior dogs now. And I adopted my senior dog when she was 11. Uh, my other dog I have now who's senior, I got when she was six months. But Gray Muzzle is an umbrella organization. And I mean, it raises funds for senior dogs and uh, they give great grants. And I just love them because it's the senior dog that's always the one that gets that gets sort of overlooked mm -hmm. in the shelter. Oh my gosh, please don't overlook these babies. They're the ones that give them a home. So I love this organization. I love supporting them. So you are so prolific. You have so much media going on. But one of the channels that we haven't even talked about is your podcast. You've been podcasting since 2005. God, is it that long? Maybe. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think it is. It's been a while. I don't, I don't know. Like this, this is an awesome podcast. I just love podcasts. And recently I haven't um, been able to listen to many, but I just... I think podcasts are just great for getting great information. Um, and it's lovely to hear like-minded people. It's lovely to, to educate yourself as well. So the name of the show is Positively Training. Yeah. And it's it just, again, started with questions, you know, me answering viewers' questions. And I have my podcast, my sort of broadcast partner. She is, her name is Holly Furfer. She was at CNN. She's at a different network now. but um, And she's great. And she's just a huge a big rescue person too, and has done a lot for the rescue community. So we just have fun and we get different guests on and, you know, it really doesn't matter. I've, I've met so many people and I've worked, of course, a lot with celebrities. It doesn't matter who you are, really, animals bring you together. So we've had some great people on my podcast. What's next for Victoria Stillwell? It's me or the dog. Yep. That's next. Um, that's going to come kind out. Of a reprise of what, where you started with all of this. A reprise. And then we're actually, we are redoing a completely new website redesign. And that's very exciting. And we are working on courses, developing courses now for the regular dog lover that trainers will be able to use as well for extra information. But also if somebody has an issue with their dog, they can go on, take a course. A lot of them will be free. Some will be paid, but most of them will be free. And they can go on and uh, find out information. But we never we never want to not have people go to a trainer. And we always recommend people go to trainers because, you know, your dog, every dog is different and your situation is unique. So to have somebody come along and actually work with you, it's worth its weight in gold. You have so much content out there on your YouTube channel and your podcast, of course, your TV shows with Positively Dog Training. I really appreciate you taking some time to talk with us here on Dog Podcast Network. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for asking such great questions and for your, for your dedication to dogs. I really appreciate it. That was so much fun. That was Victoria Stilwell, dog trainer, TV presenter, author, CEO, and just all around friend of dogs and people. We'll have links in the show notes to find everything we spoke about on today's episode. And if you'd like to listen to more dog stories, we have a wide variety of shows here at Dog Podcast Network that just might strike your fancy. In addition to The Long Leash, why not take a listen to our weekly shows, including Dog Edition and Dog Cancer Answers. You can find those at our network's website, which is dogpodcastnetwork.com. And while you're there, we'd also love to know what you think. Just click the little blue microphone icon located at the bottom of every episode page, and you can leave us a voicemail. Your thoughts are important to us, and we also would like to know what you would like to hear more of. A big thank you again to Victoria Stillwell for being on the show. And most of all, thank you for downloading this episode and hitting that play button. 
please subscribe or follow The Long Leash in your favorite podcast app. You're on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts, pretty much any service where you can listen to a podcast. And we also have a YouTube channel as well. Of course, you can listen on our website, which is longleashshow.com. You can get all the links, including our socials, at our show's website, longleashshow.com. Again, thanks for listening. I'm James Jacobson, and from all of us here at Dog Podcast Network, we wish you and your dog a very warm aloha. Is artificial intelligence going to change veterinary medicine? Well, it already has. Right now, on Dog Cancer Answers, we're speaking with Dr. Kelly Deal of Morris Animal Foundation about how AI is impacting veterinary research and the practice of medicine itself. That's on Dog Cancer Answers. Get it wherever you get your podcasts or at dogcancer.com slash podcast.